1 Thessalonians 5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Welcome back to Bible time. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would bless this time in your word. You said in your word that you honor your word above your name. And Lord, here we are to honor your word and to honor your name through the preaching of your word. And we ask you to be honored. We ask you, Lord God, to be blessed and to be edified, however that works, Father, that we as sinful creatures could do anything to bless you, Lord. But we're commanded to bless you, and we pray that this message would be a blessing to you. And Lord, that you would be pleased with this message, and that you would go before this message and behind this message, that you would clear a way for this message to reach the hearts of those that need it. And Lord, that you would go behind the message as it does its work. And Lord, that you'd not allow the devil to steal it from the hearts of those that need to hear it. Touch us here today and those that will listen and online, and let thy grace be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Here it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This benediction, this blessing is common throughout the New Testament. It's not found in the Old Testament in this way. Although the doctrine is in the New Testament, this benediction is openly stated throughout the New Testament. We have a song that we sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And their old John Newton. He was an old slave trader. And by the way, he didn't even understand that that was bad for a long time after he was saved. It's amazing how God's grace works, that God's grace reaches down to save sinners and that God's grace doesn't make sinners saints in their own ability, but that instead God's grace makes sinners saints through the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the whole point of grace. It wasn't that John Newton was a good man. It wasn't that he instantly reformed everything in his life, although there were some things that he had instant reform in, and there was a change in his life. Nevertheless, there were many things that were still ungodly that lasted for a while in his life. It was not it was not his righteousness or his reform that brought him to God. It was rather the unmerited favor of God that looked down from heaven and turned his heart to cry out to God for mercy, and God saved John Newton, and he wrote that that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Grace has been called God's unmerited favor. That's probably the most popular theological definition of faith out there, the short definition, God's unmerited favor. But, you know, a lot of times theological definitions fall way short or they're twisted and rested. You can't trust a theologian any more than you can trust a politician. The two are pretty much in the same category. They tend to say whatever they've got to say to maintain their privilege and their position and their cash flow. But in any case, the unmerited favor is a fair definition of grace in that grace is the favor of God that man did not earn. The favor of God that man did not earn. That's unmerited favor. Grace has also been called in a practical application definition, the desire and power to obey God. Now, I I think... (coughs) 
I think that it would be good to add a tagline to that, that grace is the desire and power to obey God. That's practically what grace is and what grace does, but that you must also take into consideration that this desire and power is imputed by God freely and undeservingly. And so perhaps maybe a blending of the two definitions would be in order. God's unmerited favor imputed to man that gives man the desire and power to obey God. And that's a little more complicated and a little less simple, but grace in it, grace is complicated, even though it is simple. The concept is simple, but the reality of grace is complicated that a holy God without any reason or any merit from man to do so would deign to look down from heaven, would choose to look down from heaven and condescend to man in his lowest state. It is beyond human comprehension. So while we would like to have a simple definition of grace, The reality is that grace is beyond simple definitions because it takes an infinite God with an infinite love for a fallen man to impart grace. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and we'll take up our study there in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. By grace are ye saved through faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is, that the faith is not of yourselves, the grace is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, it goes on to say, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And this is, my pastor points this out, that most people are quick to quote um, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but most leave off Ephesians 2, 10. Here in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. So the faith is what activates the unmerited favor of God. Some people say faith is a work, but God says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Therefore, God defines faith as not a work, even though it is an act. Faith is an act of the heart of man laying all of its trust and hope in God and believing what he says. Faith is trusting the veracity of the one speaking. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So therefore, the word of God is the means by which we have faith to access the grace of God. The grace of God goes beyond the is outside of the limits of the word of God. The grace of God is what induced God to give the word of God to us. Does that make sense today? The grace of God, the unmerited favor of God that he chose to condescend to man is why we have the Bible to begin with. God does not owe you anything. God does not owe you a Bible. God does not owe you his word. God does not owe you his law. God does not owe you the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it is the grace of God that gives you the knowledge of God through the word of God that then tells you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it activates the free gift, the grace of God that he's given to man. And that grace is now activated and you are saved by that grace. It's like a simple analogy that of course will break down if you try and go too far with it. But a simple analogy would be that if there was a car lot that was giving out free trucks, 
And the car lot sent out a notice to a man in the community and said, "You have your name has been selected and you have been chosen to to be to receive a free truck." And that man says, "Ah, it's just a gimmick. They just want my money." And he throws the notice in the trash and he never even shows up. In the terms of that, there would be an expiration date, and once that expires, then that free gift would no longer be available, and though that free gift was given, and the free gift was set aside, and that man was chosen and elected to receive that free gift, yet his failure to believe in that free gift would cause that to expire, and he would not receive it. It would not be activated. And so let's say they choose another, and that one that is chosen, he goes up to the car lot with his little piece of paper and he says, I don't know how it can be true. I don't understand why somebody like me would be given a free truck, but here this paper says I've got it and I'm here to claim it. And they say, it's yours, just like the paper says. And that man's faith in the word that he was given activates the free gift and they hand him the keys. He puts it in the ignition and he drives off in his free truck. The truck was no less was no less given to the first man, but the first man did not deem himself worthy of everlasting life. And boy, does that start to tie into all kinds of doctrine and open up all kinds of discussion or thought about the grace of God and the election of God and the free will of man. It all begins to um, come together as we begin to study grace, the unmerited favor of God with the grace of God. It would almost be like that old question, what came first? the chicken or the egg? Did the chicken come first or did the egg come first? Because you got to have a chicken to have an egg, but you got to have an egg to have a chicken. And the answer to that question is really simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God created the fowl there on the day that he created the fowl. And that was the day that God created the chicken. And then the egg came after that. So it's a really simple answer. If you go to the Bible, it's a really stupid question to argue about, but it's a really simple question in the Bible. And so So it is with salvation. What comes first, the faith or the grace? The grace comes first, but the faith, the egg that the chicken lays comes next. And without the faith, the grace has no effect and no ability to have any kind of continuation. So in Ephesians 2.8, he says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. The grace comes first, the faith comes second. He says, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then in verse 10, he shows us the works that faith generates, that faith without works is dead, James says. And in verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It is God's will for us to walk in good works. And the grace of God that is accessed by faith through God gives God the um, free course to work a new creature in you. And that new creature necessarily does new works. He is because that new creature is his workmanship and that new creature is is made unto good works. So the good works that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them necessarily follow the faith that follows the grace. So the grace of God that works in us then is responded to by faith and that faith that responds to the grace of God results in good works that God before ordained. And to some of you out there that seems circular, but God did it that way. So who gets the glory for the good works? God gets the glory for the good works. 
And if you think that your good works will somehow merit you favor with God, you've messed up the whole thing and you're going to find the exact opposite is true. Whether you think your good works will earn you some kind of level of sanctification or whether you think your good works will earn you salvation, that's all in vain and it can never do either. Go to the book of Titus chapter 2. The book of Titus chapter 2. We're just touching a few places in the Bible that deal with grace. Grace is all throughout the whole scripture. There are some out here that would call themselves um, covenant theologian, all this. I'm not even going to get into all that. I'm going to pretty much just leave them alone. But there's there's been a big argument. I do want to touch this. There's been a big argument about whether or not there is a, whether or not grace has always been God's way to save and whether or not God has always had a covenant. So you have these that say there's only ever been one covenant. Well, God himself says that God has made a better covenant, but God also says that it's always been grace. And there in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham expressed that he found grace. In Genesis 18.3, he tells the Lord, If I have found favor in thy sight, expressing the faith that he had found favor and asking God to act based on the favor that God had already given Abraham apart from his own merit. Grace is throughout the Bible. Grace is found in the Garden of Eden when God told man in the day that ye shall eat thereof, ye shall surely die. And man ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he should have died that day, and though his spirit did die, yet God allowed a sacrifice to be made and clothed them in coats of skins and grace was imputed to Adam and to Eve that day so that their bodies did not die. And while the death began to work in their bodies and they would die a roughly a thousand years later, yet grace gave them a space for repentance and grace gave them a way to find peace with God. And then that sacrifice was a pointing forward, a looking forward to the Lamb of God through which they might obtain eternal life and eternal grace and not just a temporary grace that would run out. So we find that grace is throughout the Bible and that while there have been many covenants throughout the Bible, many different covenants, covenants between different people, covenants between God and man, covenants between God and himself who swear by himself because there was no other that he could swear by that he would have mercy. And so God made a covenant with himself and God has made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and that covenant will be fulfilled. And while there are many covenants throughout the Bible, we find that grace has always been the means by which God has saved sinners from the beginning of the creation of the world and the first sin that man ever sinned. Grace is the only answer to the problem of sin in people's lives throughout the history of the world. In the book of Titus, we find here that the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. I'm going to try and find it myself here so I can read it instead of just quoting it. I may make a mistake otherwise. Here in Titus chapter 2 and... Verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So this grace of God is what brings salvation to men. And the Bible here clearly shows us that the grace of God hath appeared to all men. There are those that would preach a limited atonement who would say that the grace of God was only for the elect and that the grace of God is only for those that believe and that all those others, the grace of God was never intended for 
and such is a heresy. Why can I say that? Because it defies other clear scriptures. You may be able to get a few scriptures to appear to support your claim that God's grace was limited, but here in the word of God in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, it clearly says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men to all men. That means all men. It says in verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So here, this grace of God that appears to all men teaches us, and it tells us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. So this grace of God is not only God imparting the truth of our need for a savior, it is not only the act of Christ on the cross of Calvary where he died for your sins and was buried and rose again the third day. He died for our sins according to the scriptures and is alive today and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This grace of God is not only that by which God reveals this truth to man and brought this truth to man, but that the grace of God is also that which teaches those who have enjoyed his grace, who have come under his grace and the grace of God is what teaches those to deny ungodliness. The grace of God is what gives men the desire and the power to be right with God. Grace is not only a sovereign act of God, but grace is also a constant influence of God in the life of those who have come under grace. Grace is not just a decision that God made in eternity past, but grace is a practical application that is a available every day that a believer lives. You come under grace when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, born again by the power of God, washed in the blood of Jesus, made a new creature in Jesus Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new, but the grace of God not only makes you a new creature, the grace of God gives you the power and the desire to follow God and to overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. Titus chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us that we are justified by his grace, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, how does one get justified by the grace of God? Go back a couple verses and look at the context. It says in verse 4, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Now this ties back to verse 11 of chapter 2, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So this appearance of the grace of God, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward all men appeared, the grace of God appeared, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we find here that there are two sides mentioned in the book of Titus to the saving power of, of grace and then there is another part of the sanctifying power of grace that we've already looked at. So first of all, God's grace shows God's grace to man. God's grace shows you the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace shows you a need for a savior. God's grace appears to all men in the form of showing them the creator God and their need for a savior. 
And this is how the grace of God appears to all men. But the justifying grace of God does not get poured out on all men because not all men are justified. So while the grace of God, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward all men appears to all men and all men will be at least given the opportunity by God to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet not all men are justified by the grace of God because not all men enter into that grace by faith. Not all men will respond to the grace of God and therefore the grace of God that justifies us by his grace is not imputed to them. Now this will help you whenever you run into people who believe in doctrines um, of imputed grace that is apart from any faith where they unjustly lie and rest the scriptures and claim that a man can be a partaker of the grace of God without exercising any faith, whereas God said that we're saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we have the grace of God that appears to all men, the grace of God in the kindness and love of God our Savior, the grace of God in the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is available and preached to all men. But then we have the grace of God, the practical justification of the lost man by faith in his in the name of Jesus Christ, he gains access to a justification by grace that is not available to the man that has uh, seen the grace of God, but has not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So grace has many facets and grace has many different levels and grace has many, many different effects on people depending on how they react to that grace. We looked at the verse in Genesis chapter six and verse eight, where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, where there it says that Noah was the one that found it. How did Noah find grace in the sight of the Lord? First of all, the grace of God that bringeth salvation appeared to Noah. God in his sovereignty chose to expose Noah to the truth. And Noah responded to the truth with faith toward God and found grace. He laid hold on the grace. He became justified by the grace of God. You see, God doesn't have to save you even after Jesus died. In fact, the reality is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your sins actually adds to your debt of sin. I've talked to people on the street who think that their good works are going to outweigh their bad works. But one of the things that they never seem to take into account is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he died for the sins of all men that ever lived. He died for every dirty thought. He died for every dirty motive. He died for every lie. He died for every act of adultery. Jesus Christ died for their sins according to the scriptures. And that once Jesus died, mankind became guilty of the sin of the death of Jesus Christ. And beyond all the good works or the bad works that you can ever do, looming over your head in the courtroom of God is the just cause that God has to condemn you guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. As a lost sinner, you may think that sinners 
go to hell for lying. You may think that sinners go to hell for committing adultery. You may think that sinners go to hell for committing murder. You may think that that pedophile rapist out there is going to go to hell because of what he did. But I have news for you today. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. And it appeared on an old rugged cross 2,000 years ago in the form of the man God, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, who died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose again the third day. And that pedophile's sins were nailed to that cross. The say He is made the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. And if that pedophile will turn to Jesus Christ, he will be saved. And God has promised it to be so. It is not his act of pedophilia that will take him to the lake of fire. It is his denial and rejection of Jesus Christ that will cause him to become guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ and then to bear his own sins in hellfire for eternity. But his sin is paid for. The grace has appeared. The salvation is available. But will he lay hold on that grace through faith? That question remains to be seen. The answer to that question remains to be seen for many, many people. Go to John chapter 1 and verse 17. John chapter 1 and verse 17. The Bible says here that the law came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law came was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought grace and truth. Until Christ came, the law was an act from Moses until Christ. The law was brought, the Bible says, because of transgression. God's law was never designed by God to save anyone. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law and nobody ever will be saved by keeping the law because nobody can keep the law. If a man could keep the law, he could be saved. A rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what saith the law? And he said, and he, and that ruler listed some of the laws and Jesus said, this do and live. Was Jesus lying to the man? He told the man, this do and live. If that man could have kept the law, if he could have kept every part of the law, he would have lived. But the Bible tells us in James, I believe chapter 2 and verse 10, that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you are guilty of all. So in order to have life through the law, you must keep the law perfectly. If you're under the law, you are a debtor to keep the law. And they that live by the law, the Bible says, will perish by the law. Why is that? Because the law is unholy? No. The law is holy in the commandment, holy and just and good, but we are sinful people sold under sin. And because of our sin, we cannot keep the law. If we could keep the law, we could be saved by the law. But because we cannot be saved by the law, we rather fall under condemnation by the law. And the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier that God does not have to save anyone even after Christ died. Instead, we are more guilty than ever because Christ died. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, now we are guilty of the blood of Christ. God could more justly than ever send humankind in mass to the lake of fire without another word, without another moment, without pausing to give you another second to repent of your sins. God could cast you and everyone alive into the lake of fire and he would be just to do it. 
though he was just before, even more so now with the blood of Jesus Christ on our hands is he just. But God in his infinite mercy, in his infinite grace, has chosen to extend mercy to mankind that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Some people think that if you pray a prayer, God is obligated and duty bound to save your soul and he is not. God is only obligated by his own word and he's given his word because of grace and God has chosen to save you by his grace. It's unmerited. Your prayer that you pray, your tears at the altar do not merit your salvation. You going to church, doing good deeds, tithing, being baptized, going through confirmation cannot merit your salvation. Taking communion, passing out gospel tracts, preaching a gospel tent meeting cannot earn you salvation. You must understand that grace, well, a great blessing in the Bible is only possible because of our great sin. And we're going to look at that for just a minute here today. Go to Romans chapter 4. Go to Romans chapter 4. Here in the book of Romans, God has already established in chapter 1 that the Gentiles are guilty. He owes them nothing. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being made understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The greatest professor on evolution alive today that knows more big words and has done more studies on it but denies the creation of God and denies Jesus Christ as Lord will stand before God without excuse regardless of his big scientific studies because God created the world and expects him to know and find God through the creation if nothing else. But then God went beyond the creation of the world. God went beyond the trees and the rocks and the birds and the flowers. And God went beyond the human anatomy that is so amazing. You can't even hardly comprehend it. How does the human eye work? How does the human life work? Even if you can understand how the physiological parts of your body work, what makes life inside of you? What made you who you are? God made you who you are. And God expects you to seek him and to know him based on the raw fact of the creation that is obvious in front of you and your denial of the creation and all of your scientific tests and proofs that you think you have against the creation will mean nothing at the day of judgment. The creation is enough. So you are without excuse. In Romans chapter 2, he speaks of those who are under the law, uh, and he speaks of those that judge those who are out from under the law. He says, for as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. And God tells these that would trust in their own righteousness. In chapter 3 there, that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that they must go to God through faith and there's no other way it says in verse 20 therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is not is the knowledge of sin for all of sin he says in romans 3 23 and come short of the glory of god therefore we conclude in romans 3 28 that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law 
Now, are we justified by faith or grace? Titus said justified by grace. Romans said justified by faith. One of those is God's side of the equation, and the other is man's side of the equation. The grace of God is available to those who put their faith in God. And if you skip either side, you'll be damned to the lake of fire. You can sit there and with all your high doctrine and theology and say that you're elect and chosen and that by the grace of God, you're going to make it to heaven. But if you never repent and believe the gospel and put your faith in Christ to save you as a lost sinner on his way to hellfire, you will never make it. You will be cast into the lake of fire with all your theology and all of your big ideas and big words and fancy explanations for everything in the Bible. Romans chapter 4 here. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So here grace comes back in in Romans 4. We're going to look at this. Grace here. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you can earn your salvation, then the reward would be a debt and God would owe you. But the Bible says God is a debtor to no man. So in verse five, it says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So I have a question for you today. Is faith righteous in and of itself? Is believing God righteous? I want you to think about that. Answer that question in your own heart today. Does God deserve to be believed? When God speaks, does God deserve for the man that he made to believe him? Yes. So when you believe God, are you actually doing anything meritorious? Or are you doing the most basic and simple duty that you could possibly do as the created being responding to the creator? The reality is that whenever you place your faith in God, you are doing what is already your duty to do. What is already expected of you to do. You see, not only does God say, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not only does God give all these laws that we are to keep, But God who gave the laws expects you to listen and keep the laws. But what has man done? God spoke to Adam and he said, don't eat of the tree, right? And what did Adam do? He ate of the tree. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed the law of God. But then God imputed grace to Adam when Adam put faith in God, even though Adam had disobeyed God. I don't know if this is coming through. I don't know if we're getting this across today. We're trying to. Faith is what is your duty to do. Now, beyond faith, you should do the works. You, In fact, faith without works is dead. But you should obey God and you should do the things God says to do. God didn't ask you to do all those things to be saved. That's what I want you to see today. God did not ask you to even obey his word to be saved any more than what he asked you to do in just believing his word to be saved. This is a miracle. This is called grace. 
that God would say to you, if you will do what you should do and just listen to me, I will save you. I will move into your heart. I will take up my abode with you. I will give you the Holy Spirit of God. I will give you a desire and the power to do what I'm telling you to do. And I will make the, give you the power to obey you, to obey me. Do you see what we're saying here today? That your faith that activates God's grace is the bare minimum that could possibly be asked of you. Do you see that today? God didn't ask you to climb Mount Everest to be saved. God didn't ask you to run on water or walk on water. God didn't ask you to go pass out a thousand gospel tracts. God did not ask you to pray a hundred thousand prayers. God asked you to just believe him. And you should believe him. And this is why faith is not a work, by the way. Faith is your most basic duty that you are required to have towards God. So what God literally did, I, I don't even know if we're going to communicate this. Lord, help us. Please communicate this to our hearts today. What God did was he said, you guys have broken all of my laws. You've broken thou shalt not steal. If you're angry with your brother... You're in danger of the judgment. If you say to your brother, thou fool, you're in danger of hell fire, Jesus said. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery, the Bible says. Jesus taught that. You've broken my laws. You've broken all of my laws, God could say to us. And he does all through the Bible. Every one of God's laws we have broken. Every now and then I meet somebody that says, well, I've never lied. And there they went and lied. We've broken every one of God's laws. And God says, if you'll just do this. Do you realize in the Old Testament, he told the people of Israel through one of the prophets, he says, listen, you've broken every one of my laws. Every one of them, some 600 and some. Every one of my laws you've broken. He said, this do and I'll have mercy on you and I'll spare your city and I will not let the enemy take you. Keep my Sabbath. One of them, just one of them. Just take one day off a week for me. And I will spare your city. And do you know that they broke it and they didn't keep his one thing? He told them, listen, I'm going to give you a pass on every other law I've ever made. If you'll just do this one thing. And they broke it. And their city was destroyed. And that's how we are. We've broken every one of God's laws. Every single thing that God tells us to do. So do you know what God did? God said, listen, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. He's going to die for your sins. And now this is the only thing I'm going to ask of you. And he says, listen, this time I'm not moving. You do this or you burn in hell. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He didn't even ask you, by the way, he didn't ask you to believe everything in the Bible. Did you know he saves people who haven't even read their Bibles? Did you know he saves people that have Bibles with blasphemies laced through them? He saves people that heard part of the gospel at a rock concert where they're violating all of God's laws. We're going to now some of you out there are going to say, well, let us sin that grace may abound. Well, no, we'll deal with you in a minute. God has saved people that come to him and they do nothing but just believe in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. I was a little boy stealing cookies from my mom, breaking God's laws, fulfilling the desires of my flesh and of my mind. And she had me quote the Ten Commandments again. 
And I quoted them that day. And that day, God, the Holy Spirit spoke in my heart and said, thou shalt not kill. As the words came out my mouth, they went into my heart. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal went into my heart. Well, the words went out my mouth and God convicted my heart and I knew I was in trouble with God. And all of a sudden I didn't care about the fact that I was in trouble with my mom. I cared that I was in trouble with God. And I turned to God in the name of Jesus Christ and I knew no theology. There's not a church in the nation that would have asked me to preach anywhere. There's not a person in the nation that would have asked me my opinion about how to get to God. I knew nothing. All I knew is that I was a sinner and that there was a Savior named Jesus. And I called on him in my simplicity and ignorance and he saved me and he moved into my heart. He made a new creature and he began to teach me the Bible. And that is the gospel. That is what grace is. That's what we're talking about here today. That's grace. It couldn't be more grace. Anything more that God did would be injustice. Do you realize that? If God saved you apart from your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be a dereliction of duty on the part of God, who is the judge of all the earth and is obligated by his own holy nature to uphold righteousness and truth. If God did not hold us to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, he would cease to be who he is. He would be evil. He would be wicked. But God has gone so far and stooped so low and condescended so deeply to save your soul that the only word that we can even comprehend it with is the word grace. Grace. He's not asking you to believe everything in the Bible. He's not asking you to be able to explain the difference between justification and redemption. He's not asking you to be able to tell the doctrine of communion or to explain how that Jesus Christ ascended into the heavenlies or what his intercessory work is. God's not asking you to be a theological master to be saved. He's just asking you to believe the gospel. Just believe it. Did you know he didn't even ask you to pray? I mean, some people will quote Romans 10 and say that God said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It does say that. And then they'll say, that means that you have to pray. It did not say that, sir. You're adding to the word of God. You say, wait a second, we're fundamental evangelicals. We can't add to the word of God. It's impossible. Well, that's your first mistake. You think that just because you got doctrine right in some areas, you can't screw it up in other areas, and we're all susceptible. The Bible doesn't tell anybody anywhere that they even have to pray to be saved. I'm serious. It doesn't say it. Your prayers cannot save you. By the way, the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to God. So how does a wicked man pray and get saved if his prayer is an abomination? The reality is that the prayer of a, of a sinner cannot get through to God. The only way a prayer gets through to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ and his intercessory work, which takes us back to grace. Grace. And when does God impute righteousness to a man? According to the Bible, Romans 4 says here, What saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It did not say Abraham prayed, and it was counted. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him, counted unto him for righteousness. And this is all God asks you to do. When a man believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saved, and he doesn't have to pray. 
That's a reality. Now, will he pray? Absolutely. As much as a little baby will cry out the moment it's born, so will a new believer call on the Lord. Listen, you can get this all tangled up. We've got to get back to the simplicity that is in Christ, the grace that God has given, that the only thing you say, I don't know what words to say. I don't know how to pray. And boy, have we done God a disservice by coaching people through repeat after me prayers. It doesn't matter what exact words they say to God. It matters that their heart truly believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? To believe that they are a sinner, to believe that they are in danger, to believe that they have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for them and was buried and rose again, and that Christ is alive. And if they believe the simplicity of the gospel, God has promised to save them. Anybody can say a prayer. Buddhists say prayers all the time. Catholics say prayers all the time. Mormons say prayers all the time. Anybody can say a prayer. What God requires is your faith, that you believe God. And to think that that faith, listen and pay attention, please, today, that faith that God is requiring of you is your reasonable duty. It is a basic expectation that should be fulfilled by every man alive today. God is not asking you to do something great or mighty or heroic to be saved. He's asking you to just do your duty and believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Verse 16 of um, Romans chapter 4 says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So here God is saying that whenever God made the law, he knew people couldn't keep it, but that he showed people, he gave the law to show people that they could not keep it so that everyone that calls on the name of the Lord could be saved. All the seed, he says here, not some of the seed. These that would claim a limited atonement deny the Bible and they deny the gospel and are in great danger of entering into the lake of fire themselves because they have another gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ that was given was freely given to all who believe. Whosoever will may come, but not all will. Not all will. And we'll look at that here in just a little bit. So Abraham staggered not at the promise of God and um, was fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able to perform. Verse 22, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Again, when God says, you believed me, so I'm going to call that righteousness. I have a question for you. I asked earlier, we never really answered. Is that really righteous? Pay attention here. Is it really righteous to believe God and have faith in God? Is that righteous? No. say, wait a second. God counts it for righteous. That's exactly right. That word in there is really important. God counts it for righteous. Is it actually righteous to believe in God? No. It is your basic duty. There is nothing righteous about you saying, Jesus, I believe in you. That is a given, should be a given. That is your most basic obligation to God who made you to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That is the most basic of obligations. 
So when God counts it as righteous and imputes it as righteousness, that is unmerited favor. You did not do anything that makes you worthy of the grace of God. But God says, if you will believe, which is your duty, I will impute. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is grace. Absolutely unmerited, unearned favor with God. Because you did the bare minimum that you should do. And what does God save? Jesus Christ said that he came not to call the, the, what did he say, the righteous, but the lost to repentance. Jesus Christ told that story about how he invited these into the feast and the people wouldn't come. So then he sends out to the highways and hedges and calls whoever will. You see, God had a chosen people and he gave them the law and they blew it and they broke it. And then God opened it wide to whosoever will. And he brought the standard all the way down to just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that the promise could be made sure to all the seed, not just those that are of the physical seed of Abraham. Chapter five, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where truth peace comes from. As long as you think that faith is you understanding God, as long as you think that faith is you praying a prayer, getting baptized, going to church, as long as you think that faith is something that you're doing, you never will have peace with God. Because faith is yielding and surrendering and throwing up the white flag of surrender and saying, God, you are right. That's all faith is. So whenever you have faith, you're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So not only does grace appear to all men, and not only does grace grace justify those that believe, but grace also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and justly and righteously in this present world, to live godly in this present present world and not only does grace teach us but grace also lifts us up and puts us on our feet so that we stand before God grace therefore is not only the desire not only the imputed knowledge not only the teaching of God to those that have laid hold on that grace by faith but grace is also the power the impetus to stand The ability to stand comes by the grace of God. Who did Jesus Christ come to die and save? Jesus came to save sinners, the Bible says. Did you know that that means that when a man is saved, that that man that just got saved is a sinner? And nobody has ever gotten saved who wasn't a sinner. That means, listen to me today and get this, That whenever you get saved, you're admitting to all the world that you are, not were, a sinner. But that Jesus saved you and that God counts you as a saint even though you're a sinner. That's what grace is. It doesn't mean that now you have some kind of perfection that you've attained to, but rather that God has imputed to you perfect righteousness through Christ. And you stand in that grace. Some of you out there again are saying, I'm under the grace. That means, praise God, I'm perfect in Christ's eyes, so I'll just go sin because it doesn't matter anymore. We'll get there. By God's grace, we'll get there. Here in um, Romans chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace. 
You see, grace appears to all men, not all men get it, but those that receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So we find that grace, while it is infinite, is not infinitely accessible to us unless we access it by faith. And that faith is the means by which we access God's grace, not only to be saved, but also to be sanctified, to to live this life that God has given us to live and to stand, and it says here, to reign. So we reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. This is called the victorious Christian life. That God has imputed to us grace that is able to wash away all of our sins, that is able to teach us, that is able to make us stand, and that is able to give us the power and authority to reign in life. Oh, how the devil hates grace. Oh, how the devil hates grace. He wants you to earn it every way. He wants you to work for it every step of the way. If you get saved, his next goal is to make you try and attain sanctification through the works of your flesh and the strength of your resolve and the power of your will but it is by grace let not of works lest any man should boast and here this free gift that is given is linked to grace how many times in Romans 5 does it talk about the free gift the free gift the free gift I'm telling you salvation and sanctification and a life of useful service to God are free gifts that God wants to give cannot be earned, cannot be worked for, cannot be worked up. You cannot fast enough to earn the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You cannot pray enough. You cannot get enough hands laid on you. You cannot go through enough motions and give enough tithe like Simon the Sorcerer to buy the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, do we have that going on today? People spending big money to go to conferences and seminars where they can get a gift given to them and they pay for the laying on of hands and they pay to learn how to use a gift of the Holy Ghost that they don't even have that's a mock gift, that's a fake gift I'm telling you today, God gives a free gift and it's available by grace and that grace is activated by faith by believing in God, Romans chapter 6 here well let's look at these verses here um, at the end of Romans 5 Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where our sin continued to offend God and continued to prove that we were unworthy to enter into his courts with praise, God, by grace, sent salvation to us. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the reigning again, a second mention there. The free gift of grace and of righteousness shall reign in life. Those that which, which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign. And grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. If you have been made a partaker of the grace of God, then you have been made partaker of the righteousness of God practically to reign over sin, to reign over death, to reign over the devil, to reign over the works of ungodliness and unrighteousness 
righteousness in this life. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this verse is used by those who rest the scriptures to their own destruction to claim a liberty to sin, whereas God is telling you that grace reigns over sin, and that if you truly are a partaker of grace, then you too will reign over sin by the grace of God that has been imputed to you by faith. He says here, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, to whom ye obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now, how did you obey from the heart? The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the hearts. I try the reins, God said. And God has declared that there's none good. No, not one. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. All we like sheep have gone astray. So how could you obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered by you the answer is grace the answer is that grace has the ability to reign over the deception and the lies that your own heart tells you and that by the grace of God the imputed righteousness of God also includes the imputed practical power to be holy and live holy and understand the word of God and obey the word of God and therefore grace is the imputed power and desire that God puts in the heart of those who have received his unmerited favor so that they might freely obey from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto them so grace then is the free gift of God to save you and to keep you and to make you stand we could go on and on and on about that in Romans 6 and 7 and 8 and how it shows us there that if ye live after the flesh ye shall die but if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live that all ties to grace reigning so that you can access by faith God's power and desire to say no to sin and to obey God from the heart and those that have truly been made partakers of grace do that and they follow God and those that have not, do not. Over in Romans 11 there, um, we're not even going to get into all that right now. We're just going to touch on it. Lord, help me today to know where to stop and where to go, Father. In Jesus' name. In the Bible here, we have this grace that is given. You say, um, how do I know that God has chosen me? How do I know that God's grace has been imputed to me? Number one, first of all, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So God's grace has appeared to you in the form of the old rugged cross covered in the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And God commands all men everywhere to repent and says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. And this is where we're going and probably where we're stopping today. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. God has given this free salvation available to you today. But 
as Hebrews said, we are made partakers of his grace if we hold this confidence steadfast unto the end. What's he talking about? You have been given the grace of God as all men have by the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. But will you make that grace your own by accepting it through faith and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? God gives you that choice. And that choice is yours. And some of you would say, well, how do I know that God is really dealing with me? If you're worried about it, he is. You say, oh, that can't be true. The Bible says that in, uh, in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked. The Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says there is none that seeketh after God. There is none, the Bible says, that seeketh after God. The Bible says the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to God. So while you out there think that you're seeking God in your own power, the reality is that if you are truly seeking God, listen to me, this is going to help somebody today. Please pay, pay close attention. If in your heart you recognize yourself as a sinner, and you are seeking God, but there are doubts and fears that are keeping you from truly having faith in God, and you have not got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to recognize that it is God's grace that has drawn you and called you, or you would not be where you are at today. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. That's emptiness. That means, listen to me today, some of you out there don't like this, and everybody doesn't like this. Everybody in every camp doesn't like what I'm about to preach you. If there's a camp out there, the camp is not going to like this, whatever it is. You can almost just mark it down, but I'm going to preach it anyway because it's true. You cannot seek God unless God first seeks you. You cannot move towards God unless God first moves towards you. You cannot understand the things of God unless God illuminates your understanding. You cannot believe God unless God puts it in your heart to believe him. That's a raw fact, okay? So that's going to make some camps really mad right off the bat. Now we'll make the rest of them mad. And not because I want to, but because I'm going to preach the Bible and everybody's camps seem to get away from the Bible. And I love you all today. I don't mean to offend, I just want to preach the Bible. But the Bible says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That means that while you cannot come to God or seek God yourself, God has already sought you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. God is calling you. God is drawing you. God is dealing with you. And if you have anything in your heart at all that desires God and wants God, it's because of what God has already done in your heart. And if God has done that in your heart, then who are you to let the devil tell you that God has not made you one of the elect? What a bunch of lies from hell. Who are you to say to God, God, I'm waiting on you to call me. I haven't heard a voice like thunder shake my soul. I'm just sitting here knowing that I'm dead in trespasses and sins and wanting to go to heaven when I die and not wanting to go to hell, but I'm waiting on you to call me, God. All of that kind of stuff is nonsense and foolishness in the extreme. If God is dealing with your heart, go to God. Receive his grace by faith 
activate the grace of God by believing him. Stop willfully denying the Lord and Savior that bought you with his blood. Do you hear me today? Stop waiting on God to give you some kind of extraterrestrial vision or some kind of greater revelation. God has given you his word, the Bible, the holy word of God that says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now it's your turn. Call on the Lord. Have faith in God. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Lay hold on God through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the gospel. And if you come, he'll take you. All that the Father hath given me shall come to me and he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Father, in Jesus' name, Take this message and use it, Father. Let thy will be done in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, help us to obey it. Give us the desire and power to follow you, Lord. Expose false religion and our own misconceptions about you, Lord. And help us to be saved by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.